Welcome to Raz Talk, the podcast on recirculating aquaculture systems and sustainable food production. Brought to you by Raz Tech, the premier publication for Raz professionals. This podcast is sponsored by Innovacy. Innovacy, aquatic solutions built for life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our final Raz Talk episode of 2021. I'm your host, Katharina Muya, editor of Raz Tech and Hashri International Magazines. I'm joined today by Raz Talk co-host Brian Vinci, director of the Conservation Fund Freshwater Institute. How are you doing today, Brian? Good, and yourself? Oh, not too bad. Getting ready for the holidays. Very excited to start off 2022. So, hopefully, it'll be a better year for everybody. <laughs> yeah, and I'm really looking forward to uh, this episode today. Yeah, it's going to be great. I did notice, Brian, that um, in our past episodes of Raz Talk, we've had a particular focus on various salmon and trout species. And I'm guessing it's because they're some of the more quote unquote established aquaculture species across Europe and North America. However, globally, Barramundi, which is also known as Asian sea bass, is an aquaculture established species as well. There are successful Barramundi operations in Asia, Australia, Europe, and North America. Um, Production is especially established in Australia, where mainstream aquaculture, said to have the largest warm water aquaculture farm of its type, and is also the largest Barramundi fingerling supplier in Australia and the world, has its five facilities. And here to discuss mainstream aquaculture's operations and Barramundi production is uh, Dr. Paul Harrison, Mainstream Aquaculture's co-founder and chief scientist. Founding Mainstream Aquaculture in 2001 with a vision to create an environmentally sustainable business of the future based on best practice aquaculture technology. Paul has worked in Australia and abroad and holds a PhD in aquatic biology. He has a strong track record in fish production across multiple species, fish hatchery operations, and research and development both in aquaculture and more broadly in marine biology. Paul has designed and commissioned numerous recirculating aquaculture systems, which makes him a great guest for today's episode, Cat. And he has an excellent understanding of the biological requirements for aquaculture and a demonstrated capacity to merge these skills into successful commercial ventures as evidenced by mainstream aquaculture. Paul, welcome and thank you so much for joining us on Raz Talk's final episode of 2021. Let's start by having you uh, just tell the story of mainstream aquaculture's founding and business. Uh, Sure. Well, yep. And thank you, Brian. Thank you, Kat, for having me. Appreciate the um... Uh, the invite and the opportunity to uh, talk today. So, yeah, Mainstream, we founded in 2001. So we're uh, just just past our 20th year anniversary as a business. Um, we founded it really with an intention to build a urban RAS farm as a demonstration at the start and as a business and had a, a concept that we would build RAS facilities uh, near cities that can grow any species and be able to move and adjust to to different species as required. Um, I'll, I'll go back to the, uh, the 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 mechanism of founding the business, but as we moved along, we we found that multi species was uh, quite a difficult thing to do because of the specific requirements for each uh, type of species, and we gravitated towards barramundi. And I guess we sort of reshaped and rebadged ourselves after about five years as a uh, barramundi specialist uh, and we're very bullish about barramundi as a species barramundi is as being uh, a species that can industrialize to the same extent that uh, for instance the atlantic salmon industry has uh, and provide an important uh, product in that 
in that white fish um, premium category space. Uh, so as a business, we're very focused on uh, on Barramundi now, and uh, we sell our products under uh, the brand Infinity Blue in, in Australia and abroad. Um, and I think, as you mentioned in the introduction, we farm Barramundi within Australia. We also have a hatchery and a, and a breeding program uh, within Australia, and we supply uh, fish to the Australian industry and, and the global industry at, at last count. I think we have uh, 29 countries that we're uh, exporting the Barramundi to. Founding the business was really just a, a matter of putting together a team, if you like. Um, my background is in uh, marine science. Uh, fortunately for me, my brother's background is in finance and commerce. Uh, myself, my brother, and then two others um, uh, got together to found the business. And particularly through uh, my brother's financial contacts, we were then able to uh, launched the business by raising capital initially. Um, we raised approximately $2 million to launch the business. And over 20 years, we've been able to continue to grow the business from that, um, have continued to raise some more capital and, and make the business uh, a lot larger. And uh, today we're in a very fortunate position that we have a strong Australian business. We are uh, continuing to grow that that business and we have a a strategy we're executing out to 2025 to achieve a certain uh, size within Australia and at the same time um, uh, looking to expand our operations offshore as well with, with the US being a, of particular interest to us. So Paul, do you guys raise fingerlings and uh, grow barramundi both providing fingerlings to the industry and then using those fingerlings for uh, mainstreams production? And, and what's the approximate size of your production now? Uh, in terms of production, we have um, assets, which are uh, in, this, in this case, our land-based pond assets is our primary um, grow out method for volume. We have a RAS facility where we grow fish out to market as well. We do about 750 to 800 tons a year out of the RAS facility marketed product. Uh, we're doing about two to two and a half thousand tons out of the ponds at the moment, but we've uh, there's a number of ponds that are just been started, just been built, and another farm that we've recently purchased. So we have a a target towards five to six thousand tons of barramundi production by 2025. Wow, that's great. So Paul, I am wondering because you did point out there that it's been 20 years that you've been in production um, or that you, you know, founded mainstream aquaculture. And since then, you know, there's been a lot of new technologies and systems being integrated into farms and facilities um, in order to um, help farmers with their production and operations. How has mainstream aquaculture evolved in terms of technology and production systems since its inception in 2001? The, the, the driver for us is around the product, is around getting a, a premium product to people that, you know, taste great, that's been, in, that's been grown in a, in a, in a responsible way. Uh, as a business, you know, we still want to be around in 50 years' time. So the driver for us is to build a sustainable business. The initial um, idea was, uh, I, I guess we were very, very focused on RAS and we remain very focused and, and, and very proud to be a leader in that area. And we see that still as the future, but I guess over that 20 years, we've become a little bit um, less focused on that system. I guess we would say that we're quite agnostic as to the um, production methodology. Uh, we find that for Barramundi in particular, um, the land-based pond 
methodology, at least in Australia, is, is a very good current methodology to perform the grow out phase. Um, those farms are only work properly when they're augmented by a RAS system at the start, because very analogous to say Atlantic salmon, the way um, the production cycle works best is if you can uh, generate a, not a small fingerling, but a one or 200 gram fish equivalent to a smolt. And then at this stage, put that out into a, uh, a larger, more expansive um, grow out um, uh, system. So that could either be, uh, for instance, a land-based pond system or a sea cage and, and barramundi is grown predominantly in that way. So look, as a, as a business and as a technology company, we've, um, we certainly identify as, as RAS um, uh, leaders and RAS promoters, but in terms of the whole grow out cycle, we're quite agnostic to how that's done. And, and what we really see is we see currently we're, we're doing a lot of pond farming and there's also some, uh, I guess, learnings from RAS that we've been able to take into the pond farm to increase uh, yield per hectare from ponds by augmenting, for instance, with, with floating uh, mixed bed bioreactors. Um, we've also been able to put some of our technology into the back end of those farms to improve the, uh, the, the remediation of discharge water and the environmental credentials of the, of the farm. So we see really a, you know, a hybrid merge of, of technologies with RAS technology being really important and really important that we find a, a way in the future to um, perform large scale farming from RAS. But at the moment, we combine all of the technologies together in, in the most appropriate way on, on the particular location. Interesting. And so, Paul, I'm also very curious because, um, you know, here in North America, you see certain stories and you're, you're kind of focused on where you are. Um, and obviously, I'm not in Australia. So I'm wondering if you can provide our listeners uh, just a short primer on the current Australian aquaculture industry. Um, you know, what species is the most produced on land versus what's most produced at sea? Uh, could you give us a little insight on that, please? Yeah, sure. So, um... I think for any of your listeners who haven't been to Australia, it's um, um, I know a lot of people who come here for the first time are quite surprised at how big it actually is. Um, it's effectively the same size as, as North America, but if you think about it, flipped upside down because we have a very temperate um, cold water environment in the southern part of Australia, and then we have a, a tropical uh, warm environment in the northern part of Australia. So we're able to grow different um, species in those different environments. The, um, the the highest value species in terms of fish is uh, our southern bluefin tuna. Uh, so we have two major um, fin fish industries, the southern bluefin tuna and the Atlantic salmon um, industry. And both of those are in the, the temperate southern part of Australia. Uh, Barramundi comes in third to those species and is grown uh, more in the northern climates. Um, so those are the three main fish that we grow. Uh, southern bluefin tuna is, if you're f familiar with that industry, is one where um, the, the life cycle is not closed. So that industry relies on catching juvenile tuna and bringing them into um, sea pens and, and growing them up from that point. And Atlantic, Atlantic salmon in um, the southern part of Australia is very similar industry to what it is in Norway. Uh, crustaceans are quite big in Australia, so uh, prawns in particular, um, freshwater yabbies and another one called red claw are, are quite large. And then we have a pretty big shellfish industry as well. So we have um, abalone, uh, mussels and uh, Pacific oysters. 
And then again, in, in that sector, actually the largest value sector is in pearls. So uh, growing pearl oysters as well, um, predominantly in the uh, northwestern part of Australia. So those are really the main species that are uh, are covered in Australia. Uh, for barramundi, barramundi is a, a tropical species. So uh, the home of its production is naturally up in the northern warmer parts of Australia. So there's a lot of production going on there and there's a lot of different species that are kind of established, which is very, very interesting. And so I'm curious to see where you see the most growth in the Australian aquaculture industry uh, down the road. Well, I'm naturally biased and, and bullish towards barramundi. We certainly see a lot of growth in, 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 our, uh, in that sector of the industry. Uh, we are seeing quite a lot of um, interest and growth at the moment in uh, the prawn industry as well. There's some quite large projects that, are, uh, that have been on the, on the table and are publicly available on, uh, through the web and so forth on, on prawn. There's some, um, I guess, shuffling of ownership and some consolidation within the prawn industry, which is usually a, a primer or a sign of, of, of a industrialization step. So we expect to see some significant growth in the prawn uh, industry. And, you know, through ourselves, um, uh, you know, we're making significant investments in uh, to the increase in biomass in barramundi at the moment, and uh, other barramundi farmers are, are doing the same. So, uh, for instance, at the moment, we, as a industry, barramundi industry, it's it's not a huge industry, but we're producing about twelve or thirteen thousand tons uh, of barramundi, and in three years' time, based on the projections of the farms that are producing that, it's only a handful of farms. Um, expect to be at 25,000 tonnes. So we expect to double the size of the barramundi industry here in about three years' time, three to four years' time, um, and, uh, and, and, and continue to grow from there. So, Paul, that's a good amount of growth in, in the industry. And earlier you mentioned using RAS technologies on the uh, effluent end of your farms to improve your environmental performance. I wonder, what are the regulations like for the land-based farms in Australia? And, and do you think there is an advantage or a distinction for the regulations for land-based versus, say, the uh, the net pen salmon farmers? Uh, yes. Well, I think the so the salmon farming industry has been incredibly successful. Uh, really, in Australia, it was able to build itself effectively off a blueprint that came from from Norway, and uh, it didn't start really until the late '80s, um, early '90s. I think they had about a thousand tons. Uh, of production at that point, and the industry is currently doing about um, seventy thousand tons. Um, it's a billion-dollar industry. It, it um, employs over three thousand people, um, so it's made um, you know some really rapid growth. But at the same time, there's a bit of pushback on that now because that's a sea pen-based um, farming operation. And whilst the area that it's in, in our most southern state, Tasmania, um, does have uh, good environments for salmon farming. It's not quite the same as the the deep fjords in in Norway that are flushing as well. So there's some environmental issues that are probably going to put a capacity on the on the uh, further growth of of salmon in Australia. And we're actually seeing those companies are the ones that are starting to move into into prawns more and more. Um, in Australia, although we're surrounded by water, we actually don't have a lot of sea cage um, opportunities. We have a, a quite a wild environment. So in the south, we have uh, a lot of predators, being you know large sharks and and seals that like to 
um, find their way into sea cages. And if you move up north, it's even worse because you have very, very large tidal movements and very large crocodiles that do their job eating the sharks and then all of the fish. So it's quite a, um, you know, a, a wonderful uh, natural environment, but a difficult place to do sea pen operations in Australia. I think sea pens for Barramundi are more uh, likely to be done in up around the equator and, and in Southeast Asia. Right. But, but what about like if you had to start a new land-based fish farm, um, are, are the regulations uh, relatively um, uh, burdensome or do you feel like, uh, you know, that it's a good, it's a good business climate for uh, land-based farms? Yeah. So to answer the question on, on regulation, I know, I know from our experience in other areas of the world, we seem to be as heavily regulated, if not more heavily regulated than um, other jurisdictions we've been able to compare against, um, particularly for Barramundi. Barramundi, um, where we're growing Barramundi, is in the uh, northeastern part of Australia, and our farms are nestled between two very environmentally significant places, one being the Great Barrier Reef uh, in, in the ocean, and the other one being the Daintree Rainforest. Um, very sensitive and, uh, environments, and so the environmental regulation coming out of the farms is very, very high. That does create a challenge, obviously, but you know we feel that it also creates an opportunity for those that um, are able to invest properly and meet those environmental uh, regulations and requirements. Right, and and you know of course RAS is provides the opportunity to have very good environmental performance. And you mentioned previously, I, I liked your terminology that you were somewhat agnostic to you know certain types of technologies but you've applied RAS and you've also applied RAS technologies in the in different areas of the farm um, you do have RAS uh, as part of the life cycle of the Barramundi uh, production um, why did you decide to, to utilize RAS? Well we still we're in a very fortunate position I think with RAS um, in that we operate a RAS farm from from fingerling to to market and side by side, we operate a, uh, a series of pond farms as well. And uh, we're currently looking at a, a, a partnership investment we're uh, expecting to launch in 2022 in, uh, in Australia, uh, where we're going to build another 3,500 tonne RAS uh, as a step one to a uh, planned 10,000 tonne RAS. So that should give you um, a, an indication of where we see RAS, we are, uh, we, we don't think it's a way in the future. We think it's now. Um, it's certainly lower risk. I think in biomass management, uh, it's certainly lower uh, capital and therefore higher return on capital to be able to grow f um, fish out in pond farms for us and, and also where there is opportunity to grow fish out in uh, sea cages. Um, but there are other challenges with pond farms and sea cages uh, that restrict the growth and those challenges as you rightly point out uh, are often less challenges in RAS. So when you look at the the businesses both both types of businesses work uh, we, we have to do more work on RAS to get the uh, the commercial metrics better but in our in our hands one of the big problems is the capital intensity of RAS, or I guess when you look at RAS, there's, there's two 
challenges in RAS. There's the startup capital intensity of the RAS, and then there's the reliability, the ongoing reliability, so that you're actually earning uh, the uh, what you're expecting. This is from a commercial perspective with RAS. Uh, the startup capital, uh, what we see, is often what people call the, the turnkey system, often only ends up about 40 or 50% of total project capex. And what we see is, is an opportunity to really be capital smart in the way that you you build these facilities and bring down that initial capital by 20 or 25% on the, the total project, all of a sudden it becomes a, a much more um, attractive investment proposition. The other thing we feel, and we, we've, and we know this because we've done it ourselves and made, <laughs> I think we've made all the mistakes you can make. Um, there's often then an, a, a thing that happens in RAS where I think people get a little bit behind maybe because the capital intensity was higher than they thought. So they try and wind up the, uh, the, the standing stock, um, wind up the, um, the intensity of the operation and you have an operation that works well for five or six months and then crashes and works well and crashes. So part of the challenge for us as RAS operators is to find a, you know, a reliable, steady operating state where we're not trying to shoot the lights out of the production all the time, but we're trying to provide a reliable farming business. And we feel that that it is there now. It's it, We don't see that there's a lot of new magic um, technology swing that's going to happen. What's going to happen is people are going to become better at farming, better at the whole life cycle farming, which includes the marketing, capital discipline, etc. So the teams are not only technical teams, they're technical and commercial teams that will, will bring this thing together. Yeah, I completely agree with that I, concept of the idea that technology is here, but we need to improve the operations. And the operations include, you know, managing the farm and the stock at a steady state level and not trying to, you know, push beyond boundaries and then have essentially that boomerang effect that, that you talked about um, causing a negative effect on the overall production. And you guys farm grow out of barramundi in Aras, you farm, grow out of barramundi in the ponds. Um, you've mentioned uh, the net pens, and if I'm not mistaken, Australis aquaculture farms barramundi using land-based RAS for juvenile production and stocks those juveniles into the ocean net pens for grow out. And that's, you know, essentially a third model. Um, you're fortunate you're comparing your, your land-based grow out in RAS and land-based grow out in ponds. How do you think um, Australis's uh, approach for uh, broad in the uh, net pens uh, compares to your approach? Oh, I think it's a, a great approach and we know the team at Australis quite well, um, have a lot of respect uh, for them. I think that the model that they're running uh, in Vietnam now is a, is a very good model and we've seen uh, their increases in, in, in biomass uh, as a reflection of them doing very well over the last few years. I, I think the challenge uh, in sea pens um, for, for Barramundi and for ev- any industry is, is disease. Um, and in a tropical environment, you, you tend to have things moving a bit more quickly than you do in a, a temperate environment. So even when you look at um, whether it's, um, you know, European sea bass or, or Atlantic salmon, the industrialization step always presents pretty much the same way where there's a rapid increase in volume. Then there's a sort of a dip as people try and work out all of the vaccinations and disease management controls, and then it takes off again. I think uh, Australis and others who are working in that area are very focused on 
on that, but that's probably their biggest um, constraint. So outside of that constraint, um, sea pen farming is certainly a, an excellent way to farm. Uh, we prefer at this stage within Australia, uh, the pond farming uh, operations, because uh, whilst you can't get the same scale, if you like, per, per pond as you can per pen, it's just a safer uh, operation. And within Australia, uh, that has as much to do with the tidal movements and predators and, and everything as well as the disease. So we're still uh, farming effectively with, um, you know, seawater, uh, seawater feed into the farms and, uh, and exit um, from the farms, but um, being done on land. I'm still actually shocked at this comment you made about crocodiles in the uh, <laughs> northern part of Australia, potentially uh, as a predator. Uh, for for pen farmers, I guess maybe that's not the case in Vietnam, but that would significantly impact your ability to staff the farm. I would think. I would think. Um, yeah, that that's really uh, that's really great stuff, Paul. Thank you, Paul. I'm actually kind of curious because uh, you did touch on how you have you know the research systems um, incorporated into your facilities. I'm wondering if uh, you think that the water recirculation design that you've selected has any advantages over other land-based uh, recirculating aquaculture systems um, in terms of energy efficiency, cost, um, or water quality. Look, I think there's a lot of good system packages out there. I'd probably be comfortable to oversee or manage, you know, the, when I look around the, the world at the offerings now, there's probably six or eight um, large-scale providers that, that seem to provide really good packages. I, I mentioned before that it, what we see is that package, depending on the location and the complexity of the operation, you know, whether there's processing, et cetera, um, it only represents about 40% to maximum 60% of, of total CAPEX. So, you know, we've chosen to, to continue to utilize our system as opposed to going to another, if you like, off the shelf turnkey system, um, because we can be more flexible in how we build a total project. Uh, and we're very comfortable that we've developed a system along the lines that's that's equivalent to those other ones. So from a technology perspective, I we actually see that the process of, when you look at all of the systems, the process steps within RAS um, between systems are not greatly different. Um, you know, um, some might use a fixed bed bioreactor, some might use a, uh, a mixed bed bioreactor, um, some may use protein skimming, some may not, but but that, that cycle, uh, process cycle is not greatly different between uh, the providers. So we don't see that as the, as the area of the make or break area, if you like. Um, and then I think your question was around us, do we feel ours is, is better? Well, it's certainly better because we're able to control uh, better the way we would build a, a project and choose what we want in a particular project and, and what we don't want. The other thing to add around our selection and, and why we would think it, it is better is that we focus very much on um, our provision of technology being barramundi specific. So we we do consult to the industry and we actually have a couple of projects at the moment in the Middle East where we are um, designing and building some RAS facilities for um, our, our partners, our customers of our fingerling business. So we're assisting them with the, the nursery stages of the operation and actually building and designing uh, their, their systems for them. But we, 
we, we haven't forayed out into designing systems for other species and we don't at this stage intend to uh, because the other part that we see very critical is not just the, we see the, the, the RAS system, the traditional RAS system, which is the biofilter and the movement of water through tanks as sort of the engine of a, of a truck, if you like. And there's all the other parts that have to go with it. So for Barramundi, uh, you know, it starts with the, getting the sizing of the tanks right against your harvest plan, understanding your stock rotation uh, plan very well. So therefore, how long they're going to be in, in different systems, making sure that you have the right uh, fish handling and fish feeding technologies that are uh, automated or semi-automated to make sure that your harvesting activities, for instance, aren't then interrupting your, your ability to continually produce fish as well. So there's a, a lot to the business there that uh, helps to be very familiar with the species. So all of our designs uh, are very focused on the barramundi uh, life cycle, if you like, and optimizing barramundi production. Yeah, good stuff. You know, Cat uh, Paul and I recently met um, doing some standard work for the Global Aquaculture Alliance. And uh, Paul and I are both members of the technical committee that's um, helping to write a standard for recirculating aquaculture systems uh, for the GAA. But in order to qualify for that standard, which is still in development, um, the recirculating aquaculture farms must first be uh, best aquaculture practice farm um, certified. And uh, Paul and Mainstream Aquaculture have already uh, been BAP certified. I think it's actually BAP Farm 3.0 certified. Uh, is that correct, Paul? Uh, yes, that's correct. Yeah. And a separate certification for the hatchery. Yep. And so could you tell, because um, I actually had not run into somebody who was uh, BAP certified at the farm standard level. Uh, could you explain why you decided to pursue that certification uh, and why it's important for your business? There's a couple of reasons. The, the, the primary driver for us initially was as our business was maturing um, and we're talking to the market, we're talking to retailers uh, in particular, there are obvious requirements and assurances that are needed to be able to conduct some of that uh, that business. So from a market-driven um, perspective, we wanted to arm ourselves in the best possible way. And we saw BAP as, uh, as the best platform for that um, for us at the time. And, and interestingly, now there are uh, some other uh, quality requirements that are needed if, um, for instance, we do a ready uh, meals uh, business in Australia called HelloFresh um, and supply fish to supermarkets and so forth as well. And each, each of the different um, uh, end users will have some different quality requirements, but the BAP certification appears to fill the, you know, the 90 to 95% of those requirements. And then there might be a little bit of other augmentation on top of that. So it certainly gives that, that traceability piece and that assurance piece um, to the market uh, end of the supply chain. Then as a business, uh, you know, with any business, we, uh, we're always interested in gauging ourselves, um, benchmarking ourselves against um, competitors and other players either within our industry or, or similar industries. And uh, we felt the BAP standard um, offered that, that uh, ability as well. So we really use it for both of those reasons. We do find that it does, we have a, a dedicated, what we call a business systems manager who is responsible for making sure all of our 
um, standard operating procedures are in line working that people are, are following them so we do a, a lot of internal quality control as well and we find that linking that in with the BAP system works very well for us. Got it. And I'm wondering, Paul, um, is mainstream certified for any other standards? Um, and if not, are there any plans to uh, try to achieve certification for other standards in the industry? Uh, at this stage, we have really two other, I guess, compliance standards and audits that we that are conducted annually uh, for us. So um, one is uh, an internally, I guess, uh, generated one or internally within our industry. So within Australia, the uh, Australian Barramundi Farmers Association launched an initiative about 10 years ago to uh, create effectively a, a, an eco-sustainability standard. So uh, we're certified against that every year and we get our effectively our green tick as a Barramundi uh, producer. And that looks at a, a range of things from animal welfare through to uh, use of uh, energy and resources and and so forth. And, then, and much like... Brian was mentioning before uh, the initiative with the uh, Vanguard RAS standard for GAA, um, there's, a, there's a requirement or a commitment, if you like, to continuous improvement and continuous um, lowering of your footprint effectively. So we've been uh, certified for that for the last eight or nine years. And in addition um, to that, we have a requirement around uh, provision of of meat or protein and uh, in the state of Victoria where we are, uh, that's managed by a, company, a group called PrimeSafe who regulates meat and there's a effectively a, um, a HACCP um, plan and audit against that each year as well. So that's a food safety standard. Uh, consumer demands for seafood has gone up and uh, there's a forecasted population growth for the years to come. And it said that in order for the aquaculture industry to um, meet those demands, it will need to increase production by another 20 million tons by 2050. Um, so I'm just curious, I know if I'm correct, you mentioned earlier that um, you do have plans to uh, create another RAS facility. I'm just wondering if there are any other ways that mainstream aquaculture is planning to help the overall aquaculture industry achieve this goal by 2050. Uh, yeah, well, great question. The answer is obviously yes um, from us. We remain very bullish about growth. I'd probably go back to uh, an earlier comment that we will remain, probably remain rather agnostic around the uh, production methodology, but we'll have, we'll certainly have RAS as a central feature because what we see at the moment is RAS is, is absolutely essential and critical for uh, that early stage of the operation, so the equivalent of of a smalt operation. We think one of the things that really is, is holding the barramundi industry back, and not only here, but for instance in the USA, where we do um, send a lot of juvenile, a lot of fingerlings at the moment, um, is that once farmers can get their hands on a one or two hundred gram fish, for instance, the farming process becomes. Uh, a lot easier and that includes whether it's in in tanks or in open ponds or in sea cages so i think that's one of the ways that we can uh, really help a lot is provide that solution which is effectively the equivalent of the of the the smalt production facility from ras as far as the uh, overall volume of of farming and meeting the the food needs uh, yes we continue to um uh, expand our business in Australia. We've, we have a, a strong and stable and, and rapidly growing business at the moment. Um, I mentioned earlier, part of our, our 
strategy out to 2025 is also to establish some physical presence in other countries. We currently export our fish to 29 different countries, but we don't have our own uh, assets in those countries. So we, we're often assisting through a consult the further production of barramundi, but not um, growing that in ourselves. We have an immediate plan to establish what we call a, a beachhead uh, position in the USA. Uh, and we're looking very forward to that, you know, 2025 to 2030 period where we intend to take our successful model in Australia and effectively replicate that in America, where we have a market that's 10 times the size of the Australian market. Oh, as you talk about looking towards, you know, 2025 to 2030 and uh, getting a beachhead here in the US and expansion uh, globally. You mentioned replicating the model you have in Australia. You know, currently in the U.S., we have large-scale RAS projects that are proposed. Atlantic Sapphire is proposing, you know, a hundred thousand or more metric ton production of salmon per year, and Nordic Aqua thirty thousand, and I think Kingfish's uh, out goal is another thirty-five thousand tons of um, of Kingfish in Maine. I'm curious. When you look towards the expansion, do you see scale as uh, important there? Do you think the big scale uh, will be just as successful as, say, a smaller scale? Uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, the scale of RAS to be the most successful? I, I get excited by the announcements that come from uh, some of those very large projects. And I think that they're, um, you know, I think it's important to. To, to set those ambitious goals. I think as a company, we're more focused on uh, effectively, uh, maybe we're a little bit more conservative, I guess, in, in our approach. Uh, we are very focused on providing a great product to the market so that it comes out you know, reliably and sustainably. So building up that trust to the market. And then on the other side, we are a business and we have shareholders and we're very um, conscious on ensuring that the uh, the, the returns to our shareholders are are appropriate as well. So we we would tend to take a more conservative um, incremental approach to growth. Um, but I, I think, for instance, I'm talking about our sort of six thousand ton uh, type business in Australia, which we're we're we're, we're building up to at the moment, uh, and then replicating that in America. I I think that it's you know we haven't got a fixed position on scale. Uh, what we do see is that individual farms or farming units that are anything smaller than about 3,000 tonnes um, are probably difficult to run and get the commercials right. Above that, it becomes a bit easier. Uh, again, it's hard to say around scale, but, I, but it's likely that our initial plan would be something like moving into a, a new region such as America or with some other opportunities for us in the in the Middle East there, um, where we would we would set a target that's probably more around that 15,000 tonnes and probably do that in, in in maybe two or three farming units. And that's the sort of scale we would probably take the next step at. I'm not, um, I, I think these 100,000 tonne land-based operations are certainly uh, achievable. It's just the way we would go about it is probably a little bit different. Great. You know, Paul, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and, and uh, educate our listeners on what mainstream aquaculture has been doing and uh, where you where you started 
I think that was a really interesting story and uh, sharing your experiences and your thoughts on the, uh, the commercials and the technology um, is, uh, is really tremendous. So thank you. I, I hope we can catch up with you again uh, in another episode to learn uh, where you guys have progressed to. So, uh, so thanks again and uh, have a happy holidays, Paul. Yes, thank you so much, Paul. It was really, really insightful to hear everything that you had to say, and I'm sure that our listeners will feel the same way. Okay, thank you all. Uh, for our listeners, um, we appreciate you listening to this episode on uh, Barramundi Raz and the Australian aquaculture. Uh, please make sure to listen to our latest episodes of Raz Talk at raztechmagazine.com. Um, and for everybody listening, have a happy holidays and a safe and prosperous new year. This podcast is sponsored by Anova Sea. Anova Sea, aquatic solutions built for life.